This morning we continue our series in the book of Exodus, and we are looking at Exodus chapters 5 through Exodus chapter 13, verse 16. It's found on page 45 of the Black Bibles there right in front of you if you're using one of those, and I invite you to turn there with me now. In the exit of God's people out of slavery to Egypt, we see once again that God is determined to form for himself a new people in holiness. And if you're new to the book of Exodus, uh, here's some background. God had brought God's people, Jacob and his family, to Egypt hundreds of years before the book of Exodus. And really he brought them down there to help them escape from a famine that was going on in the land. And so he brings them to Egypt as a place of safety, a place of provision. And over 400 plus years, God was growing these 70 people into a multitude. It was part of God's promises to, to Abraham and then to his son Isaac and then to his son Jacob. God had promised that he would make his chosen people a multitude, right? That they would be a multitude of people. He also promised to Abraham that they would go to their own land, a land flowing of milk and honey, you know, a rich land, a broad land, a prosperous land. And then he also promised that one from Abraham's line would eventually be a blessing to the world, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so here God begins to fulfill his promise to bring them, the people of Israel, out into their own land, a land flowing of milk and honey, after 400 plus years. Today we see the length to which God goes to make his sovereign authority known throughout the world. That's kind of the big picture main point. Today we see the length to which God goes to make his sovereign authority known throughout the world. If you're taking notes, here are the three points. Number one, we see that God's sovereignty is questioned. Number two, God's sovereignty is proven. And then number three, God's sovereign grace is given. Once again, that's God's sovereignty is questioned. God's sovereignty is proved. And then God's sovereign grace is given. Well, let's just dive into point number one. God's sovereignty is questioned. And basically, this is the setting here so we would understand exactly what's going on. It's, a, it's an interesting title, God's Sovereignty Question. It's an interesting title given what had happened at the end of chapter 4. Go ahead and look there. We see that, 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 that God sends Moses and Aaron boldly to speak to the people of Israel. And, and they let them know that God is moving to fulfill his promise to bring them out of the land of Egypt into their own land. And look at verse 30. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard the Lord that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So if they're worshipping God and if Moses and Aaron are obeying God, well, who exactly is going to question his sovereign authority? And then why do they question it? Well, first... Pharaoh is the one who questions God's sovereign authority. And here we come to chapter 5. And look there, verses 1 and 2, and I'll read that. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to, and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. This here is the statement, the question that brings tension, that really is, that's, is seen throughout our chapters um, very much so. I mean, not only does Pharaoh not know the Lord, but he doesn't seem to want to know the Lord. And imagine Pharaoh sort of flicking through his address book of God's. Who is this Lord? He's searching for him. 
He looks for the Lord's name, his address, and his book of gods, and he's saying, who is he? What is he over? What is his specialty? Where does he reside? And you remember that he, he came from polytheistic background. He himself was viewed as divine. And so he's thinking about this other God. Who is this other God? And with a dismissive attitude, he concludes, I do not know the Lord. Besides that, besides that, the people of Israel, you know, they serve me so well. They're useful to me in my kingdom. Therefore, I will not let Israel go. God here is just simply unworthy of his time. He's unworthy of his consideration. And the way it reads makes it seem like he's saying, I have my plans, and if God's plans, if your God's plans, get in the way of my God, my plans, then I'm just not going to listen to him. It's interesting, right there is a microcosm of sin. It's a microcosm of sin. Uh, if your God's plans get in the way of my plans, then I'm just not going to listen to him. So we have our own moreovers. Right, God tells us, okay, you, you know, you guys use your bodies in the way that honors me. And then we come alongside in, in our sin and say, why do you not know this, Lord? But moreover, I want to have sex with whoever I want to. God comes alongside and he says, look, what I want you to do is use your money to glorify me and not yourselves. And we come along, who is this God? Moreover, I want to be rich. We could just go on and on and on. And that's exactly what's going on here. A microcosm of sin where Pharaoh who really stands for all of us, rejects God's authority because he himself has claimed the throne. This is something that New Testament scholar D.A. Carson has called the de-godding of God. The lowering of, of God's throne and then the installation of ourselves on it. Frankly, though, we know exactly what happens for those of us who have watched The Prince of Egypt or whatever. Uh, the rest of the account shows us exactly what happens to Pharaoh who does just this. He de-gods God. He's fine with the elevation of himself and fine with the lowering of God. Of course, while Pharaoh asks the question, who is this Lord? You know, we know exactly who he is. In chapter 3, God revealed exactly who he was to Moses. In chapter 3, Moses asks God, okay, look, he's fearing. He says, okay, you know, if you want me to go to Israel and then Pharaoh... He says, who shall I say sent me? It's kind of a reflection of uh, uh, Egypt's polytheistic attitude that maybe Israel had adopted. Who shall I say sent me? What is he over? What's his specialty? And God just says, I am. I am the only one there is. The Hebrew word there is Yahweh. I am that I am. The only self-existent God. I alone am he and besides me there is no other. So we know Exactly what God told Moses. And we see what's going to happen here. So the story continues. Pharaoh is angry. He's ticked that Moses wants uh, him to let them go. And so in response, Pharaoh responds as many kings do. He rules with an iron fist and he makes their labor so much harder. Remember, they are enslaved. In refusing to acknowledge God, he marginalizes God's people. Now that right there too is a microcosm of sin. We can... Uh, extrapolate this into tons of application we don't have time now but think about that in refusing to acknowledge god the ruler marginalizes god's people look there at verses six and seven of chapter five it says that the same day the same day that is after uh, moses and aaron went in and asked him to let them go the same day pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen the taskmasters were the Egyptians. The foremen were the Hebrews that were appointed to be over them. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. 
Let them go and gather straw for themselves. So they already had a quota of bricks to produce, but Pharaoh makes it harder for them to meet them. For making bricks, you had the mud, and then you had the binding agent that was the straw. You mixed all the, the two together, you put it in a mold, and then you popped out the mold, and so they, had, they were under requirement to, to meet this cert, certain quota. And seeking to demoralize the Israelites here, he makes them work harder. He tells them, look, you guys got to go search for your own binding agents. You can imagine all the Israelites would just spread across the place, just searching for all the straw so that they can make the bricks, fulfill the quota. And eventually, Pharaoh, he just rules over them. He makes them work harder. And on top of that, he even physically abuses them. He beats the Hebrew foremen for failing to keep up. Pharaoh's plan works. You fall up there in 15 to 19, just skim that. <clears throat> the Hebrew foremen plead with Pharaoh, but they are only met with a rebuke. And in their suffering, they're discouraged. Their spirits are crushed. And because of their suffering, regardless of what God has done in the past, it makes the people of Israel question the nature of God. They turn and they question, they blame Moses and Aaron <clears throat> right, So the people are questioning the sovereignty of God, whether or not he's going to fulfill what he has promised. And so they question, they blame Moses and Aaron. They even curse Moses and Aaron. Look there, the Lord, look on you and judge. Because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So now they're, they're turning on their God-given leader. Instead of seeing them as a blessing, the, the, the men who are going to lead them out, they judge Moses and Aaron to be a curse. I mean, here, to, you know, to some degree, we should feel bad for Moses. And he's shaken up by this. God clearly had given him a call. Supposed to go in and lead his people out of Egypt. And then the people are turning on Moses. What is he going to do? We ask, you know, is he going to go and lead them into faith and courage and to do what God is want, wanting them to do? Unfortunately, no. After being accosted by the people, he then turns around and accosts God. The people of Israel, they question God and they blame Moses and Aaron. And then, so he too questions God's sovereignty. Look there, verses 22 and 23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Here Moses is clearly being led by the people instead of leading them to faith in God. He himself does what they do. He blames, he resents, he accuses God. And in the midst of seeing the people suffer, he implicates God. He says, God, you are useless. God, you are impotent. God, you are powerless and uncaring. You lack wisdom and you are unjust. You have done nothing at all. You see how Moses here doesn't only question God's sovereignty, he questions the goodness of his sovereignty? I mean, how would you have answered those types of accusations when someone's going right after the essence of your being, your character? You know, I think, well, my own tendency is to defend myself, especially if they're, if they're going after something that's personal here, but God, he answers, he answers this in such a strange way. I think he answers this in only a way that a sovereign and good God does. He sort of lays aside the personal accusations and he just affirms what he's been affirming the whole entire time. 500 plus years have gone by, most likely, 400 plus. 
And he just simply affirms what he's been saying the whole entire time to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And of course, he knows exactly what he's going to do. We know what he's going to do later on. And so in great self-control, he just kind of lets the people remain in their freak out. They're freaking out. And he just lets them. Knowing exactly who he is, knowing exactly what he's done in the past, knowing exactly what he's going to do in the future. And to prepare Moses for what is to come in the Exodus, God gives a powerful testimony once again of who he is. Look at verses 1 to 8 of chapter 6. And just go ahead and skim those verses there. But the Lord said to Moses, this is verse 1, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Once again, right, he's setting the freak out aside. He's going to say, I'm not going to address the personal accusations. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. For with a strong hand, now he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will deliver them out of this land. Verses 2 to 5, you just skim there. there. God reminds Moses of what he had done for his people in the past. He, He appeared to Moses. He appeared to the forefathers. He affirms that he has genuine care for his people. Things that we've heard before. He heard the people's groaning. He sees their sufferings. He knows what's going on. And then he affirms the fact that he's the God of the covenant. That's what he's done in the past. And then in verses 6 to 8, he tells Moses what he's going to do in the future. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. But did you notice what's at the beginning, what's at the middle, what's at the end of this testimony, what he's going to do? You see what frames all of what God has done in the past, what God is doing now, what God will do in the future? Look there in verses 2, 6, and 8. 2, 6, and 8. It says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Moses brings this accusation. You've done nothing. You are impotent. And God just responds, I am that I am. I mean, the very answer just beckons the people to exercise a little bit of patience in the midst of suffering. So if you're going through some patience, do you remember who it is that's caring for you? Who it is that's working out all things to the praise of His glory and your good? Whether you're going through persecution, ridicule, or physical suffering, as some of you are going to be going through in the near future. This is God who just says, look, I am. You may bring your accusations, but know, friends, know, my beloved, that your Lord, the God of the covenant, is taking care of you. He says, I will accomplish my sovereign will. The emphasis here is everything on what God will do. And with all the doubting and fear going on, you've got Pharaoh doubting, you've got the people of Israel doubting, you've got, you got Moses doubting. With all this doubting going on, we know that if the people are going to be delivered, if they are going to be delivered at all, it is going to take the act of the, of the sovereign God to deliver them. And this is just reaffirmed. I mean, after God repeats his plans here in chapter 6, the people still doubt Moses there in verse 9. Moses still doubts He still lacks confidence in God in the face of his own fears there in verse 12. And Moses is not seen in a good light. I mean, first, he accuses God of doing nothing, good for nothing. And then when God decides that it is time for he himself to do everything, Moses says, but I can't do it. He blames God for doing nothing, and then he says he can't do anything. But for those of us who know Yahweh, the sovereign creator God of all things, and the God who is with his people, we know that he fulfills all of his promises and that he will work to deliver his people. We see here that God's sovereignty is questioned by everybody. 
If they're going to be delivered, it's going to take a sovereign act of God. And of course, we know what's coming. Point number two, God's sovereignty is proven. God's sovereignty is proven. As chapter seven opens, our attention is not on Pharaoh who opposes God. Our attention is not brought to the people of Israel or Moses even. The attention is fixed right on what God plans to do. And we know, friends, that a showdown is coming. From earlier, from chapter 3, we know that Pharaoh is not going to let the people go unless compelled by a mighty hand, as it says there in 3.19. And this upcoming showdown is nothing less, okay, this is nothing less than a spiritual war between the true one and only God of heaven and then Pharaoh and the gods of the earth. Remember, Pharaoh was considered a deity in Egyptian polytheism, and Pharaoh was backed by his magicians and his sorcerers. And so in, seven chapters, in chapter 7, verse 1, God makes it very clear to Moses that, look, Moses, you are going to speak with all of my authority. He says there, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be the prophet. Just as God has the authoritative word, so his prophets speak for God. So Moses here, he has the authoritative word from God, and Aaron is his spokesman. And in this sense, Moses is like God to Pharaoh, who operates on divine authority. So you have Moses and Aaron with the authority of God, and then you have Pharaoh and all of his sorcerers and magicians representing the kingdoms of man. And these two are going to go to battle here in the Exodus. God charges Moses, look there at verse 2, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And in this, friends, God will prove his sovereign power over the created universe and all those who oppose him. Let's just look at these sovereign acts of judgment one by one here. We're just going to go briefly and quickly through these plagues. So I hope you guys are, you have your Bibles open there. You're just, I'm going to ask you to skim through those things as we go along here. Well, these acts of judgment are formally known as the ten plagues or signs. Signs that really reflect the fact that God is sovereign over everything. That he indeed is Yahweh over all. The people, uh, sorry, sovereign over his people, over everything and with his people. Of course, there are other miraculous deeds that go on. We're going to see a, a staff that's turned into a serpent. We're going to see at the end of this exodus that, uh, you know, there's the parting of the Red Sea and then the closing of it too. But here we look at the, at the ten official plagues. But before we get there, this confrontation begins with great significance. As Moses and Aaron, they go into Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And the Pharaoh asks him, demands the people of God, the prophets of God, the servants of God to prove themselves. Look at that verse 9. Prove yourselves by working a miracle. Show me the power of Yahweh, he says. And what Moses and Aaron do is they throw down their staff and it becomes a serpent. Now this ought to have been very significant to Pharaoh. At the center of Pharaoh's headpiece, his crown, was an upright cobra, an enraged cobra. There it's a symbol of sovereignty, the sovereignty of the Pharaoh. It's a symbol of his own deity and his divine authority. And it's no surprise what Pharaoh does. He brings his divine sorcerers, supposedly divine sorcerers, there in verse 11, the king of Egypt summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. 
the Egyptian magicians throw down their staffs, but then in verse 12, you see what happens. Aaron's staff swallows up the others. But even as Pharaoh watches his sovereignty get gobbled up, verse 13 says, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He's still asking, who is this God? Moreover, I don't really care. Then comes the first official plague. The water of the Nile River is turned to blood. This is in verses 14 to 25. The ancient Egyptians, I'll put another background. The ancient Egyptians saw the Nile to be the primary source of their existence. Now already you should be thinking of Jesus Christ, the one who sustains all things by the power of his word. But here the Nile is their primary source of their existence. The Nile was considered to be the giver of life to the lands. It wasn't God who, who brings the rain on the evil and the righteous. No, it is the Nile. And then also they consider the Nile to be the Lord of sustenance. The one who causes the whole land to live through his provisions. In verse 16, Moses relays the, the request once again to Pharaoh. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. So Yahweh and his messenger and prophet, they come to the table here, working miracles. Moses tells Aaron to strike the Nile over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, canals, ponds, pools, all of the water, and it becomes blood. Now, just for a little bit of background, it's not entirely clear whether or not it becomes blood. Uh, there was a way of speaking about foul water by describing it to be as blood in the literature then. But if it is blood, you know, God is sovereign over all things, and we as Christians know that. Uh, and so uh, we, if it is true blood, then we, I have no problem believing that. Um, but you see, once again, what, what uh, the sovereign of Egypt does. The sovereign of God turns the, the water to blood, and then the sovereign of Egypt, he calls the magicians to do the same and it works. Now we don't know how much water they turned into blood. But you see there the result. Verse 22. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He sees his success that he brings to the table in this battle. He says, I got no problem. He sees the, the strength that he has. And he says, I don't have a problem here with Yahweh. Who is this God? Then we have official plague number two. God brings frogs upon the land. Moses sent to Pharaoh again. This is in chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. Moses sent to Pharaoh again. At the end of verse 1, let my people go that they may serve me. Now you see here this tension here. Yahweh, the sovereign creator of all, has already said, already claimed for himself a people that exists for his glory, that exists so that, that they might serve him. But then Pharaoh is saying, no, they are going to serve me. And so that's what prevents them from leaving the land. Verse 2, but if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. This here is not like going into a pet store where you get observed one bullfrog and perhaps even think it's cute. We're talking about millions of frogs inundating the whole entire land. It's coming out everywhere. This is a plague where the land is stricken by them. Just think, some of you right now, you might be getting freaked out. You never touch a amphibian ever just imagine your own fears you're dealing with millions of frogs here by the command of god moses tells aaron to stretch out his hands over the water of the land and frogs come up everywhere but look in verse 7 magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of egypt imagine how much confidence he would have there 
in his own power, in his own divine sovereign authority. He commands the magicians and the sorcerers, and they're doing the same exact things that Yahweh, the sovereign creator over all, does to. Apparently, he's not very sovereign, he might think. After the frogs come the gnats, verses 16 to 19 of chapter 8. And here as we read, though, interestingly enough, there seems to be a little bit of a turning point. Moses tells Aaron to stretch out his staff and strike the dust so that they become gnats. Verse 17, all the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. But look what the magicians do. Look at verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is telling, isn't it? Pharaoh's magicians stand powerless in the face of the power of God. And they now are testifying to the sovereign one of Pharaoh about the power of Yahweh. But does Pharaoh listen to his people? You look there. It says, the last part of the verse there, he would not listen to them. It's a clear rejection of the testimony of the power of God. Here is the magicians fail to do what Yahweh does. Next we have the plague of flies, plague number four. Some people translate this to be mosquitoes. They're like biting flies. Again, Moses says, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. And if you do not listen, verse 21, I will send swarms of flies. But look, at something here is different. Verse 22, God makes a division between the Egyptians and the people of God. He sets apart Goshen where God's people are. And this division here underscores the fact that the power of God is with God's people. God is against those who persecute God's people. And God's power is for those whom he elects. Here we see a little weakening on Pharaoh's part. Look at there in verse 25. Verse 25, then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. He says, okay, go, but stay within the land, guys. And Moses says, no. And then after some back and forth, Pharaoh finally gives in. Look at verse 28. So Pharaoh said, I will let you sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Moses then goes out and he prays to the Lord that the flies would be removed. Look there, verse 32, though. Pharaoh gets a little bit of this comfort. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. I think the way that I, the, the way that I apply this or see an application here for us is, you know, if we know that we are in a bind, and then all of a sudden we who, who might claim to be spiritual but then not follow Jesus, all of a sudden we start praying to the Lord, we start praying to God, and God actually grants a little bit of a reprieve from your suffering. He, get, he grants you just a little bit of deliverance. A, a glimmer of hope that says, yes, I am sovereign. But then when we see that little bit of leeway that God gives, all of a sudden we go back to following our own ways. We abandon the, the, the God, the sovereign God that we just prayed to. We ask, we, we're, we're at our wits end and we finally say, the God of the heavens do something because I can't. And then he does. And then we go back to our ways. And then we seek the throne of God ourselves. It's the same thing here has gone all Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart this time and did not let the people go. Plague number five, you have the plague of livestock. This time God causes a plague to fall on all the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, the flocks. But Israel's livestock was protected. And still, verse seven, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. Plague number six, after the plague of the livestock, God turns to the Egyptians themselves and gives them boils on their skin. 
Look at chapter 9, verses 8 and 12, 8 through 12. God commands Moses to take soot from a firing kiln, a furnace. And here this furnace is probably the ones that the Israelites had, were using to make bricks. This is kind of poetic justice here, as one commentator wrote. The soot made by the enslaved people of Israel was now to inflict punishment on their oppressors. But still, you look at Pharaoh's response there in verse 12. As they are covered in boils, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh... And he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken. It's a very different response than, let's say, someone like Job, who suffers even physically. And he says, the Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Here, Pharaoh's just hardening his heart. He had the seventh plague, the plague of of hail, verses 14 to 35. It's the same call. Let my people go that they might serve me, serve God. And the sin is that they were exalting themselves over God and his people. And he promises this hailstorm. That would just kind of crash on everything. Look there at verses 17 to 19. But this time a provision is made for the Egyptians. And it is taken. A provision is made for the Egyptians. And then it's taken. Look there in 20. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh. Hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses that they might be saved. So you see this progression here. The people of Egypt are slowly coming to realize. The magicians recognize that these acts are the acts of the finger of God. Now Pharaoh's own servants, they heed the words of the prophet of God. So then, then, you know, we're we're actually left hoping. What's Pharaoh going to do? Is he going to turn? Is he going to repent of his sins? Is he going to recognize that God alone is sovereign? Look there at verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right And I and my people are in the wrong. He says, plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. This is an incredible admission. Finally, the one who sees himself and all the other people see him as divine. Finally, he says here that your God is in the right and I am in the wrong. But it's not genuine. Here again, I'm sure you know that there are people who claim to be Christians, claim to follow Jesus. Claim to say, yes, I love holiness, but then all of a sudden, you know, after time and after testing, you know, their supposed faith just kind of goes away. His, Pharaoh's faith is not genuine. His confession is not genuine. And you know that because he says there, this time I have sinned. It's very different. It's like this time, this one instance, this one action, I have sinned. You compare that to something like Isaiah, who's before the Holy Lord. And he says, I am a man of unclean lips. He's getting at nature there. Yet Peter, before the Holy Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He's getting at nature there. Pharaoh's like, this one time I've sinned. But his confession is not genuine. Verse 34. He sinned again. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Next, we come to the locusts here. The eighth plague is the same pattern. Look at there in verse 4 of chapter 10. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts on your country. Essentially, you know, when me and my family were living in Dubai in the Middle East, uh, I had got into a conversation with a woman who was from North Africa. 
And she said that she had seen, not quite a plague like this, but she would see swarms, thousands, hundreds of thousands of locusts kind of descend upon everything and eat, just gobble up everything. And so she knew here the power of the locusts to bring devastation among the people. And you can imagine, their economy is devastated. Their livelihood is devastated. The crops are gone. How are they going to live? And this, and Pharaoh here, his heart is so hard. This is getting embarrassing for Pharaoh. Look at 7. Verse 7 of chapter 10. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? So the servants once again are going to Pharaoh. Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Here is the mighty Pharaoh lacking wisdom in himself, not knowing what to do with all the power of the Egyptians. But of course, his heart is still hard. Verse 10, he refuses to let all of the people go. But he said to them, the Lord be with you. If ever I let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord. But that is what you were asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence there. He's saying, look, the men go, but all the families and the children, you, they stay. So, you know, he's trying to navigate this negotiation with the servant of God here, and it just does not work. And even in 17, you see there, or 16, then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. This is after the locusts have come. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once. Here it is again, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. And eventually they are removed, and verse 20 says, Pharaoh did not let the people of Israel go. The ninth plague, darkness. Here we get a little bit more of, of how they understand what's going on here. The ancient Egyptians regarded this god Amun-Ra, the personification of the sun, as their chief deity. So when they see sun, they see deity. He was the creator god. However, when Amun-Ra sunk in the west, when the sun set, it was understood to represent death in the underworld. So in this ninth plague, here you have the sovereign Yahweh and Moses and Aaron commanding the sun to be darkened unable to shine on Egypt and the sun's worshipers, signaling death and judgment in the land. God calls Moses to stretch out his hand toward the heaven for darkness. You look there, and they can't see each other for three days. But interestingly enough, Israel has light, or the people of Israel have light. Pharaoh calls Moses, go, but leave your animals. Of course, Moses says it's not going to work, because how exactly are they going to sacrifice and worship God without their animals? And in the, in the end of verse 27, he would not let them go. And he, there he even threatens death. So this is, really, this is really a brief overview of the plagues here, at least the, the nine of them so far. I hope that you take some time this afternoon and just read through them. Imagine the devastation that's being wrought on Egypt by, as we know, the sovereign god Yahweh. But in the face of it, Pharaoh's still thinking, who is this god? Moreover, I have my own plans, self-fulfillment, self-rule, the sin of autonomy of thinking that he himself is on the same plane as his very own maker. These plagues lead up to the climax of the tenth plague, the killing of the firstborn of Pharaoh and then all of Egypt. Look at chapter 11, verses 4 to 6. Look at what Moses says as he reveals God's plan there. I'll go ahead and read those verses, 11, 4 to 6. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, 
About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been before, nor ever will be again. This tenth plague is given the most space here in this account. It's addressed in chapter 11. It's addressed in chapter 12. And some of us might think here that this judgment upon Pharaoh is harsh. We have to remember that Pharaoh here actively opposes God. He actively sets himself against the sovereign God, Yahweh. His sin is downgrading God from the status of the one and only to simply one of the many. This is the, once again the de-godding of God, and not only does Pharaoh embrace his own, not only not only does he downgrade God, but he embraces his own deification. God downgraded; he himself is upgraded to to deity. Now, this is such an offense to the character of God. Even though something of the character of God is revealed in things that are made, if you ever stand before the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or anything you think is beautiful, like just. The beauty of, a, of one simple flower, a rose. Something of God's character is revealed in that, according to Romans chapter 119. But Pharaoh, he neither honors God nor gives thanks to him. Instead, he attributes the sovereign power of God, the beauty of God, his, his wisdom, his knowledge to Amun-Ra. And then even himself. Instead, as Romans 1.23 says, claiming to be wise, he's talking about all, everyone who rejects God, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, the glory of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Romans chapter 1, in fact, the whole entire Bible says that this judgment is deserved because Pharaoh himself has stolen God's glory. If you're visiting with us today and you know yourself not to be a Christian, the Bible says that we all are glory thieves. We all have sinned against God. We have all dethroned Him from the seat that only He deserves because we have taken it for ourselves. And now the sovereign Creator is set against us. In fact, the Bible even testifies in Romans, the book of Romans, that we ourselves are set against God. And happily so, we are hostile to God, it says. Now, like Pharaoh, we might not realize that the sovereign God is set against us. We might not realize it for a while. Maybe you will even prosper. I mean, Pharaoh is prosperous, isn't he? He is, after all, the king, the sovereign one over the entire land of Egypt, ruling over multiple peoples. But Pharaoh knows, or Pharaoh will know, that there will come a time when God the righteous will move to judge. And we too will know this as Christ will come again, the sovereign one, to judge. Friends, though, the wonderful thing there here that's communicated in these plagues is that God is not only the sovereign Yahweh, but he is also a God who is gracious and merciful as well. We see this in point number three, God's sovereign grace given. God's sovereign grace given. Do you notice that in the passage, God makes a distinction between his people, the people of Egypt, showing that those who are with God are protected. You can see this division. You can write these down and, and look at the verses later. 8.22, you have 9.4, and then 10.23. But this distinction is most clearly seen in the last plague and what God calls the Passover. 
God had already announced that he would kill the firstborn of those who oppose him. But for those who obeyed him, he would pass over them. He would preserve them from judgment and God would not pass over them simply because he wouldn't do this simply because they were Israelites. No, they showed their allegiance. They showed their trust. They proved their submission to God through obedience, through the sacrifice of a lamb, which God intended to have great and a permanent symbolism in the life of his people. This year was the Passover meal. You see there in chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, you see the procedure. God tells the people of Israel to take a lamb or a goat per household and uh, sacrifice it over a meal. Now, they would have eaten a meal like this plenty of times before, but what was different is that now they were supposed to eat it with bitter herbs and then with unleavened bread. They were supposed to eat it with bitter herbs because it symbolized their bitterness in their time of slavery. They were also supposed, to be, also supposed to eat unleavened bread without leaven, without yeast. Because it symbolized the fact that they were to go out of Egypt in haste, quickly. No time to rise, so they were supposed to rise and leave quickly. But in verse 7, God spells out exactly how he wanted his people to show that his power was with them, his grace was with them, and his mercy was with them. Verse 7, here the people are, are commanded to show their own allegiance. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel on the houses in which they eat the sacrifice. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Friends, you see how the blood was the sign of distinction? Those who stood against God, those who refused to obey, for them there was judgment. But for those who were under the blood, they would be preserved. Look there at verses 29 and 30. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Imagine how sobering this was for Israel. And the Egyptians, obviously. They were commanded, as chapter 12 says, to stay in their homes where they had light. They were supposed to sacrifice their lambs. They were supposed to apply the blood on the two doorposts and then the one above. And all the while they do this, they look in the distance and see darkness and hear crying. And we're supposed to remember the words in the beginning of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 2 and Exodus chapter 3, where we see that God is the God who sees the suffering of his people, who hears the cries, their groanings under slavery, and know that God's power is with those he chooses. And to those who reject him, to those who oppose him, to those who de-God God, there is judgment. There was not a house where someone was not dead. Judgment for those who oppose God, but salvation for those who are with Him. 
God determined this Passover meal would be one that his people would celebrate year after year, having a permanent reminder that God's salvation goes to all those who are under the blood. But as God intended, this meal was to be a pointer to the true Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, which is why A.J. read the passage that he did from John chapter 1, where John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So even in this exodus of the Israelites under slavery, we see how this points to Jesus Christ and his people. While we might not be leaving an exodus under slavery of people, we certainly are being saved and delivered from our own sin through Jesus Christ. Friends, if you are visiting with us, it is in Jesus Christ that God proves his sovereignty most clearly. As God the Son leaves his throne of glory and then he takes on flesh. But then also in Christ, God's mercy and his grace are proven as well. As all those under his blood are saved from their slavery to sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this makes sense as he is the one who dies during the Passover. And before his blood is shed in Luke 22, he gathers his disciples And he's so excited to eat the Passover meal with them, Luke 22 says. But then as he takes the unleavened bread, he does not say what the Israelites were to say at the meal. They were to say, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, in 12 12, verse 8. Instead, fully aware of what his own upcoming death would accomplish, he breaks the bread. He pours the wine and says, this is my body which is given for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So friends, you see that in the Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate next week, which I hope we're all going to make time to be there, those who are members of the church, we say this is what the Lord did for us as he died on the cross for our sins. Thank God that we are under the blood of the Lamb. I hope you see that God is not only sovereign, that he is not only the righteous judge, but that in Christ he is merciful and gracious. And his grace goes out to everyone who trusts in him. Even in this Exodus account, this is relayed. You know, in the Passover, it was not just for the Israelites, it was also for the Egyptian too. You look there at verse uh, chapter, four, uh, chapter 12, verse 48. Whoever wanted to be saved, whoever wanted to worship Yahweh, whoever wanted to submit to him was brought into the covenant, could celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Lord says it is for the stranger. It is also for the sojourner who enters into the covenant with the Lord. And so it is for salvation today, friends. If you just look around here, you see that we are not all of the same ethnicity. We don't all make the same amount of money. We don't all come come from the same backgrounds. And that's just a testimony of the fact that God's grace goes out to everyone who turns from their sins and believes. Friend, it is so clear that God is the sovereign one over all. And in his display of sovereignty, you see that he displays and gives his sovereign grace. And once again, if you're visiting with us and you do not know this sovereign God, he calls you now to repent of your sins and believe on him and know forgiveness, reconciliation with him. Adoption into his family and a new life. Right standing with God. Friends, you can know this today if you turn from your sins and believe. This Exodus account 
is all about the one and only sovereign God and his power to deliver. And where Pharaoh proudly and dismissively asks at the beginning that we looked at, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Friends, by the end of all of these plagues, it has been shown so clearly that he is Yahweh. He is the great I am, the sovereign creator of the universe. And because Pharaoh and the Egyptians would not humble themselves before the Lord, the Lord ensures their humiliation. This is why God gives the refrain throughout our passage and that through the display of God's sovereign power, everyone knows the truth, I am the Lord. You look there in 7.5. Here this is before the plagues even begin. As he's telling Moses and Aaron what they are to do, how they are supposed to perform the signs before the Egyptians. He says, in his doing these things, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. This refrain is in 7.5, it's in 7.17, and 8.10, 8.22, 9.14, and 9.29. There's a reason for that repetition. And friends, therefore, if this is true, then to dismiss God and to downgrade him, just as Pharaoh and the Egyptians did, is to sin against God. And the same goes for Jesus Christ. To dismiss Jesus is to dismiss the great I am. Friends, if you read through the Gospels, it is very clear that he is God the Son come in the flesh. He comes and has power over nature, just as Yahweh does. He speaks, right? And the inanimate objects obey him. He speaks to the wind and the wind obeys him. He speaks to the waves and the waves obey him. He comes doing the same things that Yahweh does, which is why when he says, before Abraham was, I am The Jews want to kill him because they know that he is equating himself with God because he is God. And when the time had come for Jesus to get arrested and the soldiers ask if he is the one, you know what Jesus says? He says, I am. The Bible says the soldiers drew back and they fell to the ground. Friends, if you know that you have been dismissing Christ because you don't want to submit your life to him, you flick through your address book and you don't find him there. Moreover, you've got things you want to do that don't align with God's will. The Lord calls you to be saved, to turn to him, your sovereign creator and maker. It's an offense. It is an offense. If there is a God, it is an offense to breathe the air he gives, to live the life that he has given, to enjoy all of the gifts, your very own family and the jobs you have, the money that he provides, and to not give him any credit at all. You know this with your own relationships you know this with your own parents your parents created you and so for you to dismiss them as if they didn't it's an offense to your parents friends so it is with god the bible says that he is your creator and your maker and we learn to live when we live underneath him living under his ways following after his son relying on him for salvation Friends, if you want to know about more, more about this Jesus, I invite you to talk to me. I'll be standing there at the back of the door. We have this study, too, that if you want to learn more about who this Jesus is, we can pair you up with another person to study the claims of Christ according to his very own word. Right? So for intellectual integrity, if you're going to reject what's here, what you're hearing now, we want you to know actually what you're going to reject. So we invite you to study the Bible. See for yourselves. Who does Jesus say he is according to your word? If you talk to me after, we'll definitely work to pair you up with someone to do that study.
Well, as we conclude here, just a note of application for the last five minutes here. As Christians, the fact that God is sovereign over everything, this offers us great encouragement, doesn't it? It means that even the greatest rulers of the world are, at the end of the day, in the hands of the Lord. That's another emphasis in the passage here. God's sovereignty over the king of Egypt. A supposed deity in the Egyptian culture. Even he is in the hands of the Lord. Did you notice that in the beginning of the passage, it is Pharaoh who is said to harden his heart toward the Lord? And the Israelites, you know, you can imagine, they are, they are scared. They're wondering what exactly is going to happen because Pharaoh wants to kill them. He's hardening his heart toward the Lord. He's not listening to Moses. He's not listening to Aaron. But then as the story progresses, the language highlights God's sovereignty. For example, in chapter 9, verse 12, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's hardening his heart, but the Lord is as well. Friends, this should encourage us. As even the events of the nations, the European Union, you got Brexit, you got all these other things. You even have the rising of power of ISIS. All the world's leaders are in the hands of the Lord, and even those whom we elect to be our president. And even though we might not fully understand why God intends the thing he does or how he acts, just as Israel did not understand, friends, we can trust, knowing that everything is working out to the praise of his glory, that the world would know that he is God, and that with the strength of his might, he works deliverance for his people. You think about ISIS, for example. With a spread of 60 million migrants. We are actually seeing, if you follow the websites and uh, the persecution websites and whatnot, we are actually seeing the growth of the church in a way that has not happened in so long when it comes to the people of Islam as they are leaving Islam and coming to Jesus Christ. There are people right now working in refugee camps all around those areas, preaching the gospel to people in our very own denomination, where we are seeing people say, look, this is not good. We live it. Let's look at your Lord of love. And they come in droves to Christ by his grace. And even those who suffer, you can find radio interviews right now of people being of people who lose their loved ones. Because of these things. And they count themselves worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And so they glory even in suffering for the name of Jesus. Friends, this calls us to trust in God. And no matter what's going on. We see what God has done in the past. We see what he's going to do in the future according to his promises. We know that God is Yahweh, sovereign over all. And God who is with us. Praise God. As Jesus has promised us to never leave us nor forsake us. And so we can say in the face of persecution, in the face of suffering, what can man do to me? Because God is my God and he, in fact, is with us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. This is how the section of our scripture ends today with a strong reminder that it is the Lord who works deliverance for his people. In chapter 3, God had revealed that because Pharaoh, Pharaoh's disobedience and hard-heartedness, he would not let the people go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Well, in chapter 13, as they stand together, having exited Egypt all by the grace of God, under the blood, God calls them together to commemorate the Exodus through a yearly feast of unleavened bread. Notice the refrain that runs throughout there in chapter 13. It's found in verse 3, verse 8, verse 14, verse 16. I'll read verse 9 here. As they were all supposed to come together and celebrate the feast, they were to remember, look there at the end of verse 9, 
For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought us out of Egypt. And so we say too, under the blood of Jesus, with a strong hand, Christ has brought us out of sin. Praise God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you as being God over all. We confess that in many times we live as if we are autonomous, that we are dependent upon no one, and that even if you are a God, Lord, we too are your equals. But Father, we know that from this word, from all of your word that you give us, that you alone reign supreme. Lord Jesus, and so in, in light of these facts, we give you praise. We proclaim that you are ultimate, that you are the sovereign one, that you are. We know, Lord, according to your word, that all things are made through you, and all things are made for you. So, Lord, we offer up ourselves again. We confess, Lord, that in our own sin, we want to live for ourselves. But, Lord, we thank you that you give us a chance to open up our eyes, and you send your spirit to open our hearts So, Lord, we pray that we would live in light of the fact that you are the sovereign God. But not only that, Lord, you are our Father. And so we can trust you. So we can relax in your arms and in your will and in your Savior's blood. Father, we thank you that you are a God who doesn't just write us off immediately once we have sinned. But yet, in your love here, even the people of Israel, even to Egypt, Lord, you draw near to them again and again and again. Lord, we thank you that you are a compassionate God who seeks after those who have wandered away from you, calling us to lay down our arms and to worship you and proclaim that you alone are God and besides you there is no other. Father, we pray that you would help us trust in your sovereignty as you are moving, as everything is in the palm of your hands. And Lord Jesus, we pray that we would know that you continually uphold everything by the power of your word. May you reign supreme here in our life as we entrust ourselves to you. In your name we pray. Amen.